Maybe you're here today and you're seeking God. You've been away or you've checked out or maybe you've never really been in relationship with Him. I want you to know that the kingdom of God is near, that Jesus is near. And He's waiting for you to take a step toward Him. And would you pray that today would be that day? That you commit to Him, that you experience Him. That you embrace the kingdom of God. That you embrace our Savior, Jesus Christ. So whether you're in struggle or doubt, whether you're just flat spiritually, or whether you're really seeking, I want you to know that He is in your midst today. Would you open your arms and receive Him? Father in heaven, we thank You for this time. We thank You that greater is He that's in us than He that's in the world. And that You are willing to meet all our needs according to Your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. And today we confess You as Lord. And we invite You to transform our life. Speak to us. Move in us as we say yes to you. Amen. You have your Bibles. We're in Mark chapter 12, of course. <clears throat> Mark chapter 12 as we continue. And uh, today, as Jesus is confronted again, <clears throat> he deals with the issue of the most important commandment and the afterlife. You know, I noticed, you know, one of the questions you'll see here is uh, they're going to make a pretty absurd argument. Reducto ad absurdum, it's a, a technique, a debate technique to show you the fallacy and the absurdity of your position. And, you know, I was I was thinking about this week as we were studying and talking through this, some of the ridiculous laws that still exist on the books here in the state of Texas. And there are, are many but wanted to just share a couple with you that uh, are interesting and uh, that don't make a lot of sense. One uh, is that in certain cities, it's, a, it's a illegal to spit on the sidewalk on Sunday. Don't ask me why Sunday, uh, but in some cities in Texas, that's, that's a law right now. Uh, there, are other, there are other areas of Texas where, where um, it is okay, the way it's technically read on the book, although they'd have a hard time, uh, and doing this court, if if um, someone gives you a gun and they give you permission uh, to commit a crime against you, as long as you give them a 48-hour notice, uh, then that's okay. All right. So there are some absurd laws that we see, and there's some absurd positions that are still on the books for Texas Day. And there's another town that um, is illegal again to drive your horse on Sunday down Main Street unless uh, it has a tail light. Don't ask me what kind of tail light that is. But those are laws that are actually on the book. And we'll see that there are groups that, that decide to encounter Jesus and use just that type of absurd logic. Now, before we get into our text, I want to give you a few terms 
just so that we understand, so that when we reflect back to them, you understand. So sometimes I mention these things, and you may not fully know what they are, and these words are written in your bulletin, but I'm gonna, I decided this week to make you go to the extra trouble of pulling the pen out and actually writing them down, uh, as, as my, uh, fifth grade teacher used to make me do. Okay? And so I want to give you some terms just to understand as we kind of walk through this. And the first term is actually going to be that of Pharisees, okay? And we've talked about them. We've defined it before, but I want to give it to you again. A sect of Jews who were strict keepers of all 613 laws. They also believed the oral tradition uh, as well as all the Old Testament was divinely authoritative. So what does that mean? This was a group of the conservatives, if you want to call them that, uh, that adhered to all the laws, not just the Ten Commandments, but all 613 laws. And on top of that, they had what they called their oral tradition, which is interpretation of the laws and uh, the kind of the practicing of these laws. And there's argumentation about how many there were, but there were <clears throat> anywhere between uh, 700 to 2,000 more of these oral traditions, depending on which scribes and which religious rabbis you uh, you affirm. So there are all these laws, and so you could say there there are as many as at least a thousand, but as many as two thousand different laws that they had that they tried to keep. And their life consisted of keeping these laws, of not doing what they shouldn't do and doing what they should do. And again, it was pretty massive. And they had a, they had a pretty big voice in that day. And they believed that it was all divinely authoritative. It was all deemed of God. It all had uh, divine backing. Okay, the next group we have are the Sadducees. Now, on the other end are the Sadducees. They are the relativists. Now, even though many of them are in high positions within the priest order and within the Sanhedrin council, the sect of Jews who did not believe in the afterlife and only used the first five books of the Bible. We say the Torah, uh, probably more accurately, just the five books themselves, would be called the Pentateuch, the first five books. And so they believed if it wasn't there, we didn't ascribe to it. As a matter of fact, we don't ascribe to any of the miracles of God. We don't believe that those happen today. Sound familiar? We don't believe any of those miracles can happen today, and we only go back to the first five books of the Bible. So, with that understanding, we see those two groups. Let's do a couple other definitions here for you. Uh, the next one is, and we mentioned this earlier, reducto ad absurdum, an argument designed to show the absurdity of a position. And this is the uh, logic principle that they're going to try to exercise against Jesus here in just a moment. Leveret marriage. Leveret marriage is found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verse 5 through 6. And leveret marriage was basically a social welfare system of that day to take care of widows and orphans. So what would happen is if you died, you would hopefully have a brother. If you didn't have a brother, it would be the closest of kin. And they would take that woman and they would take her kids and they would marry her. Okay, And that provided for Because remember, there's no retirement system. Your retirement system is your children. If you don't have any, that's a tough position. And if your husband dies, then that's probably your main source of income. So this was an act of mercy uh, that was divine by Davidical law. So leveret marriage, the principle of if a husband dies, then the next male of kin uh, takes up the right of the husband's responsibility and literally enters into a marriage agreement to provide for those children and that wife. <clears throat> And then our final uh, definition is the Shema. The Shema 
is really Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 9. But the, the principal part of that is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O hear, Israel, the Lord God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Okay? And we're familiar with that. And Jesus, of course, affirms that as being the greatest commandment. All right. With that understanding, uh, let's also look at our points before we read our text. And let's just look at this very briefly for just a moment uh, so that we have a little understanding. Uh, Jesus is going to encounter the, the Sadducees, and we just talked about them for a moment and who they were. And when he encounters them, he's going to give them this response. He's going to tell them that they're in error, that they do not know the Scriptures, that you don't understand the power of God, and he's going to state that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, he is the God of the living. The God of the living. So, let's jump into our text right now. And uh, let's just read that together, starting with verse 18 of Mark chapter 12. Jesus, again, is addressing the afterlife and what is the most important commandment. <clears throat> so, some of the Sadducees <clears throat> who say there is no resurrection, by the way, uh, Paul in chapter 24 of the, God, of, of the book of Acts, not Paul, Luke in Acts 24 tells us that uh, the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection, they do not believe in angels, and they do not believe in the afterlife. Okay, uh, we have, That would be very common for groups today. It's not that new of a position. So they don't believe in any of those things. They believe when you die, that's it. Try to be a good person, but this life is kind of it, and that's the end of it. So that's who's coming to him, and they're proposing this, this statement that they don't believe, and they're trying to show him the absurdity and discredit him. So some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him. Verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. That's the leveret marriage we talked about. If a woman doesn't have any children, then she, when the brother takes her, they will have children and they'll take on his name. And again, what is the retirement system of that day? It is your children. That's, that's what you hope for, that you have children that will hopefully provide for you. Some of you wish that today. Verse 20. <clears throat> there were seven brothers. The first took a wife. Now I want you to use, I want you to notice the language that they're using here. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and after dying, left no offspring. Verse 21, the second also took her. Notice they take her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, verse 22, the Bible says, so seven left, uh, so the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In verse 23, the Bible says, in the resurrection which they don't believe in, by the way, when they rise, whose wife will she be? Who does she belong to since the seven had been married? So here's what they're doing. They're saying, Jesus, you know Levitical law, and you seem to, you seem to believe in the resurrection. You seem to believe that there's going to be life after. You've spoken of that. And we want to understand something. If that, in fact, is true, we want to know how this whole marriage thing is going to work in heaven. Now, let's take the Leverett Law, which we all agree is something that Moses gave us. And it was a good thing for those who had been orphaned or widowed. 
And um, let's take that and let's say that the first first husband dies and then the second, third, fourth, and they go they go they argue a seven person. And you know, and scholars say that this may have been an actual uh, individual, could have been, but but nevertheless, let's just call it hypothetical for, for the moment. Whose wife is she going to be? Now, it'll be interesting as we continue on the text. You'll notice the language that's used for the wife, used for women. Whose is she going to be? Who's going to take her? Who's going to get her? <clears throat> Does anything ring a little bit? If you're a woman, if you're a man, you probably just completely missed it. Uh, does anything not sit quite right with you there to begin with? You know, a lot of times people take this text and go, I don't like this text. This makes me nervous. Matter of fact, Randy said, are you really going to preach this on Valentine's weekend? I said, yeah, it's the next next text. And they'll go, wow. Because Jesus is, is going to say something pretty remarkable here. But we have this understanding. Let's continue. Let's go to the next verse, verse 24. Jesus told them, you are deceived because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. And remember, these are people who had memorized the first Five books of the Bible. They had memorized the Pentateuch. So it's not that they didn't couldn't recite it, but they didn't know it. They didn't know the heart of it. You don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. You don't believe in the power of God. Verse 25, excuse me. For when they rise from dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, we know that angels in heaven are perfected beings, okay? <clears throat> and we know that when we uh, rise, that we will be given an imperishable body. We will be given a perfected body. Not only our body, but our emotions, our mind, our spirit. We won't be unhealthy at all. Uh, our spouses won't get on our nerves. Our children will be perfect. It'll all be like we dreamed it'd be, okay? And it, we can't even really hardly fathom it right now, can we? But that's the way it'll, that's the way it'll be. But this is the verse 25. This is the verse that people get disturbed by. I, you know, we know we know half of you are going to be excited about this, and the other half are really going to be upset when you hear this verse. Half of you are going, thank goodness, you know, and then the other half are going, you know what? I, I don't think I like that. I don't think I like that at all. Well, let's take our Western minds off for just a moment, and let's take our uh, anthropocentric uh, idealism of how we think what is best for us. We know exactly what it is. For just a moment, and let's think about this, okay? First of all, for when they rise from the dead, they will not marry, okay? So apparently there'll be no weddings in heaven. One of the reasons we know that that's true is why? Because who's going to be the bride of Christ? Who technically is the bride of Christ right now? Who is it? The church. The church is the bride of Christ, okay? So we are going to be the bride of Christ. And so, and there will be no one given in marriage. Now, we don't appreciate it in our culture today, but still in many of the cultures of the world today. Matter of fact, I would almost argue uh, a large percentage, if not half of the cultures, that it is still very prevalent that women are given in marriage. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, particularly in Jesus's day, they were bought, they were sold, they were used for their dowry for what they could get. Uh, they were used to bring peace treaties, to bring peace between clans and families and tribes and kingdoms and nations. That was just the expectation. So as you notice, the way that they speak, who's, who gets her? Who's, who's she going to be given to? Where she has no choice in the matter whatsoever. Okay? And so when we get to heaven, <clears throat> here's what you won't have anymore. 
That's my wife. Hey, hey, <clears throat> that's my wife. She's over here. Get over here. <clears throat> that mentality is going to be gone. There's no authority in heaven <clears throat> except God himself. You're not going to have authority over your wife or over anybody else. Now, there's some of us we, we don't like that. You know why? It's because you're unhealthy. That's why. When you get to heaven, you're not going to need it because no one's going to be unhealthy. God has an order right now. And you know why? Because we have sin nature. and Because we're unhealthy. But you're not going to have to wonder where your wife is. Okay, here, let me say this right up front. I believe there's three things about it. First of all, I do believe we will recognize our loved ones in heaven. We see that Saul to Samuel. We see that Moses and Elijah were recognized. We know that David even says that he will see his child in heaven. So even our unborn children will be seen, okay? So I believe there'll be full recognition. I think you'll still love your wife and your children. I still think you'll have a great relationship with them, but you won't own them, okay? And it'll be so healthy you won't care. You won't have to worry about, where's my wife? Where's my husband? Where are my children? You're not going to be asking questions like that, okay? You're not going to be worried. You're not going to be concerned. You're going to have a beautiful relationship with them. It's going to be perfected and healthy and whole like you could have never imagined. Maybe like some women had a, just a small glimpse of a dream that they thought it would be like, and then they got married and it all went away. Okay, it's, but, but perfect and whole and complete in every way. And you're not going to think in terms of mine and yours and theirs. What a wonderful world it would be. But because of our sin nature, that's not possible. In heaven, it will be. And we will glory in every desire and dream and wish that is totally fulfilling and totally glorifying. We will experience before Christ himself will be perfected and whole. And Jesus knows that. And so he said, quit trying to talk about your, the way that you go about marriage and the way that you feel about women. Because that's not going to be pertinent at that point. You're off the, you've missed it theologically. You're completely in error. And Jesus goes on in verse 26 and he says this. Now concerning the dead being raised. Haven't you read in the book of Moses? It's interesting that he points out to the book of Moses. He's talking about Exodus specifically here. Because remember, they only believe in the first five books. So if he didn't use an argumentation from Psalms or Isaiah or some of the other books or Daniel that give prophetic utterance about the dead shall rise and about the resurrection, then they go, well, we don't accept that. But he goes to uh, the book of Exodus and to one of the most prominent passages for the Jew and, um, in Exodus 3. And he goes and he tells them about the burning bush experience, how God spoke to him and said, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Continue to next verse, verse 27. And he said, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly deceived. He's saying, look, God said that he was the God of Abraham. Now, Abraham's died at that point. He's the God of J Jacob, of Isaac. Why would he say he's the God of the dead? He's not the God of the dead, but the God of living. Paul tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. Okay? So he said, look, even your own scripture, even the Pentateuch of which you so narrowly focus on, gives us indication that God is alive and that those who are in him are alive. So he lets them know you... First of all, you have bad theology. Secondly, God is alive. Thirdly, it's not going to be like you think. 
you are completely, uh, you are pretty misunderstanding and misaligning the whole concept of heaven and of the resurrection. And so then we're going to go from here and we're going to see a couple of things. We just mentioned again that he said that uh, you're an error. He tells him about that. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. You don't believe in the resurrection and that he's the God of the living. But now he's about to answer their questions about the most important command. There's going to be somebody who hears that and is amazed. Matter of fact, we believe it's a Pharisee who hears that and he's amazed by his answer. And he's going to come to him and he's going to ask him a few questions. And he's going to start right here, or he's going to ask him one principal question. What is the greatest of the commandments? And let's look at that for just a moment. Jesus' response to the most commandments. One of the scribes approached him and said, when he heard them debating, and he saw Jesus answer them well, he said, which command is the most important of all? He asked this principal question. What is the greatest commandment of all? Now, what the scribes and the Pharisees typically believed, and probably even a lot of the Sadducees, but we know the Pharisees did, uh, they believed this, and they have it in their writings. The first, the first and most important thing is the law. Okay? That's where it all starts. The keeping and the abiding of the law. Underneath that is the sacrificial system, and underneath that is expressions of love. So, primary is the law. Secondary is the sacrificial system. And third are expressions of love. That's what he would have been taught. But this guy has been trying to keep close to 2,000 laws. And he's just going, how on earth do you do this? I mean, I've memorized all this scripture. I've gone to school. I've done everything that I can. I'm a scribe for heaven's sake. And I just can't, I can't seem to do it all. How do you know what's important? And one of the answers that was given back there, well, it's the law. They're all important. But this man, noticing, this, noticing how Jesus responded, he asked Jesus, and I believe in, in all authenticity, he asked him, how do I know? Which is the commandment is the greatest of all? What's most important? In verse 29, Jesus is going to answer. And by the way, this is one of the few times, matter of fact, the only time that we see Jesus affirming one of the religious leaders. This is the most important, Jesus answered. Listen, Israel, the Lord God is one. Now, what Jesus is going to do, he's going to quote the Shema. We talked about that a while ago, Deuteronomy 6, 4. And he's going to quote the Shema. He says this, Hear, O hear, Israel, the Lord God is one. That's a monotheistic God. There's one God, verse 30. And then he says this, The love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus said, You are to love God with all that you are. With all of your, your mind, yes, you want to learn and educate yourself. With all of your heart, you want to make the volitional choice to serve me and to worship me. With all of your soul and your passion and your compassion, love me. And with all of your strength, that's the greatest command. That's where we start. And then he said this. He gives a second. He asked him for one, and Jesus is going to give him two. That's the first one. He's the second most important, and I believe the reason he's doing this, because remember, what did they believe? They believed the law, and they believed the sacrificial system. Jesus said, no, it's to love me first, and secondly, it's to love your neighbor as yourself. There's, and this is from Leviticus 19, 18, Jesus quotes. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other command greater than these. And matter of fact, we know in the other gospel, he said, all the laws of the prophet hang on this. In other words, this is where it starts. 
Everything is to come under. And, and the law was a good thing, but let me tell you, it starts right here. You are to love me with your heart, soul, and mind, and you love others as you love yourself. And out of that will flow your desire to want to obey the law, okay? To participate in the sacrificial system. But those things don't overcome um, loving me and loving them. It doesn't do any, you any good to go through all the formalities, to go to the temple, to offer the sacrifices, to give the quotes, to recite the prayers. If you don't love me, and if you don't love others. Continue on in verse 32. And then the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, that there's one God and there's no one else except him. In verse 33, and to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Okay, He doesn't um, try to, to uh, castigate them and say they, they have no relevance. He said, but this is more important. You can't give a burnt offering. You can't give a sacrifice if you don't have your, love in your heart for me. In verse 34, the Bible says, When Jesus saw that he answered him intelligently, he said, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared ask him a question any longer. He goes, You know what? You're real close. Matter of fact, you are right before the truth. You are in the, some translations, you are in the midst of the kingdom of God. You recognize this is a heart matter. It's not that you're going to be good enough. You're not going to be like the Pharisees. Look at all the things I don't do, and look at the things I do. Particularly the things I don't do. Look at them. I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go out with girls that do, I don't even talk to people that do. Alright? And Jesus is very unimpressed by that. And then you've got the relativists, the Sadducees. You know what? Let's just use our common sense. Doesn't it just make common sense that God would be good to everybody? And I mean, really, intellectually, is there really anything after this? Let's just make the most of this life. Just, it doesn't really matter at the, at the, in the end of the day, but we've got to have a system of order. And let's, let's try to be good. Let's try to do what's right. But this is it right here. And some might say, and Jesus was in the middle. He wasn't in the middle. He wasn't in the middle. You've got... The fundamentalists and the liberals, so to speak. And Jesus is in the middle. Jesus is outside of the box. Jesus said, look, if you're going to do that, you've got to be perfect. And this guy's going, I know, I've been trying to be perfect. And that doesn't work. It's impossible. This over here. Yeah. You know what? We believe the first five books. We don't believe in any of the miracles. And uh, which, we're pretty smart. We've all gone to school. We all do very well. And this seems to work for us. It's all relative. It's not that important uh, what everybody believes. It's all kind of relative. And Jesus said, you know, I don't describe either one of those. Here's the, here's the truth. You are more sinful and more wretched and more removed from God than you could have ever imagined. That's the gospel. You are a sinner and you cannot save yourself. You are never going to be good enough. You're never going to obtain all. You're never going to get that good. And you're not going to just be a good person. And I'm not just going to wink at it. I'm not just going to say, well, you know, you people seem nice. You're good. And you people are bad, you're out. Jesus doesn't do it that way. Jesus says, I want you to recognize that you're all sinners. I died and I suffered for everyone. And I want you to recognize that I am perfect and holy. I am God who's come in the flesh. 
And what I want you to do is quit trying to use your man-made systems of how you think goodness is obtained, how you think heaven is obtained. And I want you to trust me. I want you to turn it over to me and say, Jesus, I trust you. I believe you who you said you are. You said you that you are the way, the truth, and life, and I believe it, and I commit myself to you. That's what he's asking. So many times we think it's based on what we know or what we don't know, how good we are, how bad we are. Hey, if that's true, where do you divide it? Where do you cut it off? I mean, does Hitler make it? Well, maybe not Hitler. What about Stalin? Well, maybe not Stalin. What about Jeffrey Dahmer? What about? And we start coming up with this little man-made list of who we think ought to get. And we think we're God. And God's saying, you know what? That's not the way it's done. You don't get to decide. And the truth of it is, it's not done that way. I just want you to recognize who I am. And I just want you to confess yourself before me. It's like the scribe. Many of you here today, by the way, are a lot like that scribe. You're literally like that. You're not far from the kingdom of God. You're wrestling with things. You're saying, I don't know. This, this doesn't quite make sense. You're kind of like the Sadducee. This doesn't quite make sense yet. I want it to all feel okay and feel right. But you know what you got to do is just take a step toward him and say, you know what? Jesus, I believe. I don't understand it all. I don't get it all. There are things that don't seem fair and don't seem right to me. And that's another way I know it's God because if it was me, I'd make this whole thing up in my mind. Here's how you know you're not making it up in your own head because it's not what you would do. It's not how you would do things because He's God and His ways are so much higher than ours. His thoughts are so much higher than ours. And so He's asking, He's saying, look, I want you to trust me. And quit coming up with your own methodology. You're close. I think about a lady named Darlene a few years ago who said, look, I'm, I'm an agnostic. My parents were atheists. With all this, I just have a hard time believing any of this is true. You know what I said? I said, you know what? Just keep coming and just listen and just pray this prayer. Say, Jesus, speak to me. And she did. And matter of fact, we used to have her picture back there. And she came to a point. It was about nine months. And finally, she accepted Christ. She just kept taking baby steps toward the kingdom because he was in her midst. Matt Jones, you've heard that story before. I met with Matt about four or five years ago. He was an agnostic. Didn't really believe in any. He said, you know, my wife and kids are coming and it's going well for them. I'm going to come and I'm going to listen. Got anything for me to read? I'll read it. So he read several books that I gave him. and He just kept taking steps. And one day he took the step and he was baptized right here. He trusted Christ because the kingdom was close. You know, the kingdom is close as if you're honest today and you're willing to say, I, I can't do it myself and my method doesn't work. You're close. Will you take that step? Well, let's finalize. There are some things practically that we can do as believers to experience the power of the kingdom of God. And we don't experience the kingdom of God. We try to live out our life in our own power. And we try to keep the law. And we try to be just a good person. We deny the power of God. When we just see the life's coincidences, our life's occurrences as little coincidences. And it was neat as Darlene and Matt and others have gone through this process to see how God began to speak. And you can say, oh, that was a coincidence that 
that that was spoken on that day when I had that question. I thought about a family that was here last hour who came seeking and there was an issue they were dealing with and there was a testimony given about that very issue. Is that a coincidence or is that God? I definitely believe God is speaking. The question is, are we listening? Or do we simply listen to our own thoughts of fear and preservation? I'm, I'm afraid and I want to be in control, so I try to control it. I don't want to take too many steps. I don't want to get too far out there because I don't know what will happen. That's the whole principle of gospel, isn't it? Let go and let God. Instead of being ruled by our fears and our self-centeredness. So how do I take a step toward God if I know Him? Well, there's something called spiritual disciplines. One of the reasons that we practice Lent and we uh, start, you can start today or tomorrow. You start when you're, when you're ready. I'd encourage you to start soon, though. Or you're going to miss it. <clears throat> but uh, one of the things we do, or one of the reasons we practice this, is for you to take a step toward Him, to embrace Him, to grow in your faith. To, you can experience the power of the kingdom of God. And we invite you to let go of something and to replace it with something else. So what are some of those things I could replace it with? Number one, Bible study. That's a great discipline. Some of you are involved in a Bible study. If not, I want to encourage you for the next 40 days to become involved in a Bible study. Maybe you just want to do one personally. If you want us to give you some recommendations, we can do it. Obviously, you have this Lenten devotional that will help you. Uh, we encourage you to pick that up and do that. Worship. Take the first 10 minutes of your day. Maybe in the car, maybe at home, wherever it is, and say, I'm going to give for the next 40 days, I'm going to give God 10 minutes. I know some of you think that's a lot. If you can't do it, if you, do four, if that's where you have to start, okay? But I, I'd rather you start somewhere that you can say, I can commit to do it, at whatever time it is. Maybe you don't do lunch for 40 days and you devote it there. I know that's radical. Ain't that radical? Godly counsel. Who are you allowing to speak into your life? To give you wisdom? What teacher or what uh, authority or what uh, friend are you allowing to give you accountability? Fellowship. And that's one of the reasons we do small groups. Who are you in community with that can speak into your life? Confession. Who are you being open and honest and accountable to? Prayer. Are you designating a specific time to pray each day? Sacrifice. <clears throat> What's something you're willing to let go of to feed your spirit and to kind of burn out your flesh? One of the ways, uh, here's, a, here's something I'll give you for a sacrifice. For some of you, the, the issue of giving is very hard. I want to invite you to tithe during Lent. I know that's, you, some of you just think that's ridiculous. I want to ask you to take that challenge and see what God does in your life. Just a challenge for you. Some of you that are already tithing, already giving, you might think of other ways. Uh, maybe you want to help with feed the hunger or you're going to do something else. But think of something that you're going to give up that you would have done, whether it's a sport or an entertainment or food, and I'm going to devote uh, to the kingdom of God. It's a challenge. Fasting. You thought those were hard. What if you didn't do anything for a day, for a meal each week? What if you completely gave up caffeine? Some of you would come in here doing this kind of stuff, wouldn't you? What if you completely gave up alcohol for 40 days? What uh, if you let go of fats and sugars or whatever it is is your deal? What if you gave up media? What if you gave up TV? What if you gave up entertainment for 40 days? And if you're checking all those and thinking, I'm not doing that, not doing that, not doing that, not doing that. 
you're kind of far away right now. <laughs> you're also the person who go, I don't ever get anything out of this. You're right, you don't. And until we're willing to take these, and again, oh my goodness. If, if we could just be transplanted to Haiti for about three days, and I know some of you are going here this week. That's so good. You know, these things just wouldn't be that big a deal. And it just tells us that these things have us. We don't have them. That's really one of the things we're doing. We're saying, let go of things. Let go of the things that have you. And you take back control of them. And lastly, silence and scriptural meditation. One of the reasons we don't hear from God is because we don't block out everything else. We don't focus on Scripture. The primary way that God speaks to us today is through Scripture. But how many of us read and are just silent to think and focus upon the Scripture that we've read? Let me give you three places to consider. Obviously, there's the Lenten devotional, but if you just want to take a little study, one would be the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and just read that through each day. It'd take you about 15 minutes, but you would have an understanding uh, basically, all the all the major teachings of Christ. If you did that, you did that for forty days, you would have a good handle. Okay. If you just need something positive, you're discouraged right now. Take uh, Philippians chapter four, verses four through nineteen, and just read that. Too. That'll take you about three minutes. Maybe you're struggling. You just need positive. Maybe there's some things you're dealing with some guilt, and, and you need to just work through some things. Take Psalm fifty-one. Whatever you do, I want to invite you to meditate on Scripture for the next 40 days. Block something out. Starve your flesh and feed your spirit. Let's pray. Father, there's some here today who are near the kingdom of God and they need to take a step spiritually to just say, God, I believe. I don't understand everything. There are things that you say and do that bother me and I just don't get. But God, I want to take a step towards you. I want to embrace you and God, just as Matt and Darlene, once we take that step, the light begins to come on. And it doesn't make everything easy or simple, but truth begins to invade our life as we receive the truth that you've already given. Lord, for those who have become spiritually flat or distant, I pray that this would be 40 days that they take the step toward you, God, and experience you in your fullness and your grace. Lord, we thank you so much for how good you are. And as we enter into this Lenten season, May we be near and a part of the kingdom of God.